Thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard podcast. We are a Jesus-centered community in El Mirage, Arizona. We hope through these conversations your spirit will be stirred. For more information, you can visit our website at www.revealvineyard.com. Well, we're on week two uh, of a series called Hooked, The Lies We Believe. And last week, we started the series by unpacking uh, John chapter 10. We laid a, a pretty solid foundation, I hope, out of John chapter 10, where Jesus basically says that there are two voices competing for our attention. And Jesus kind of unpacks this, what this looks like. He says, there is the voice of the good shepherd. And he says, I, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And he says that I call to my sheep and they hear my voice and they follow me. And he said that I lead them to pasture. But then he says, there is another voice that is competing for your attention. And he says, that is the voice of the enemy of your soul. He says that he is a thief and a liar in his purpose is quite simple, to steal everything that the good shepherd is trying to impart to us. And so he goes down, he breaks up this this idea of two voices competing for our attention. He goes on to say that not only is one voice a thief, but he is also a liar. He says that everything that he says will be a lie because he speaks out of his character. Look at uh, John 8. He says, because there's no truth in him, When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is the father, or he is the originator of lies. Jesus is saying, understand, that there are two voices, and one voice will speak truth, and one voice will tell you a lie, and if that lie hooks you, it will lead you down a path that you do not want to go down. I want you to take a moment. Think about your most regrettable moment, or your biggest failure. That thing that you don't talk about, that you don't like anybody to know about, that you kind of, you know, just feel like you're just kind of blanketed and shamed. This, this, we'll move past it quickly, but for, for uh, an example, chances are that during that season of your life, there were two voices that were competing for your attention. And chances are that if you listened to a different voice, you most likely could have avoided a season of life that was a season of pain, a season of heartache, or maybe ongoing tension in life. That if we would have taken a different path, two voices competing for our attention, the possibilities are that maybe we weren't in that place, maybe we didn't buy it, maybe we never said it, maybe we never dated it, maybe we would have, we would have missed a season of pain if we would have listened to another voice. And so Jesus kind of makes this idea that there are uh, two voices. He summarizes it in John 10, 10. He says, the thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy. But my purpose is to give you a rich and a satisfying life. Here's what Jesus is saying. The life that you desire, and nobody wants a life full of sorrow and pain and perpetual tension. He says, the life you desire, the life that I desire, is ultimately determined by whose voice you listen to. Listen to that again. The life that you desire is ultimately decided by whose voice you listen to. One voice will speak truth. The other one will speak lies. And Jesus tells us that truth has a specific result in your life. And he says that truth is that it leads you to freedom because truth matters. We said this last week, that what I believe to be true doesn't matter if it's truth or not, even if it's a lie. A lie carries the same weight as truth to the one that believes the lie. So what I believe influences what I think. 
And what I think influences what I do, and what I do sets the trajectory for my life. It's the same for every one of us. What you believe influences how you think, and how you think influences what you do, morally, spiritually, financially, relationally, right? All of it. And what you do sets the trajectory for your life. So I want us to explore a subject today as we step into week two. That's been the topic of numerous sermons or numerous conversations uh, that I've had with people during my time as a pastor. Let me ask you this, and we'll, we'll, we'll wade into it. What do you think about when you think about what God thinks about when God thinks about you? I know it's kind of a tongue twister. What do you think about when you think about what God thinks about when he thinks about you? Now, here's why this is important. Because what you think about when you think about what God thinks about when he thinks about you determines what you think about when you think about God. Just put that to memory, okay? (laughs) What you think about when you think about what God is thinking about you right now ultimately determines what you think when you think about God. And so there's a lot of weight to this, this, this topic, this lie that we buy into. And this lie surrounds, coming from, is surrounded by this question. How does God handle our most regrettable moments in life? How does God handle our moments of deepest regret and our biggest failures? And if your answer to that is negative, if your answer to this is negative, then what you think about God is probably that God is some angry uh, deity up there who's waiting to smite you with you know, fire and brimstone. And out of that comes this little lie that I've heard numerous times throughout being a pastor that says, it goes something like this. Um, God is punishing me for what I've done. It's the lie of saying that God must be angry with me, or I've heard people say that I deserve blank. Whatever is happening to me, I deserve the, 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 the situation I'm in, the sickness, the divorce, the depression. I deserve it because God is punishing me for the lowest point of my life, the thing that I did that is most regrettable. I deserve this. Other types of lies are that uh, I'm not sure God really has forgiven me or I'm not sure if I'm really saved. And there are the struggle that we have, and it all stems back to this idea, how does God respond to our most regrettable moments? And so let's be seekers of truth today as we jump into week number two of Hooked. Join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, would you rest and speak to us? Would you make truth known to us? We have all been hooked by lies at some point. Lies that deceive and distort and lies that shackle and keep us from being the people that you've created us to be. Self-lies, cultural lies, religious lies, emotional lies, relational and marital lies. We've all been hooked at some point. And so we're asking that you would show us how to spit the hook and swim towards truth and swim towards freedom. We invite you to have your way upon us, and we rest in the truth that mercy triumphs over judgment. For the offering, let it go towards the things of God, 
and the ways that we are serving in our community and the schools that we are involved in and our projects in India. Let us represent you well as a God who lavishes love and mercy on his creation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be talking about Peter's story today. Peter was one of the original uh, 12 disciples, and his story is one of colossal failure, but also one of remarkable redemption. A little background on Peter. Uh, Before becoming a disciple, Peter was a common fisherman. And when Jesus saw Peter and called him, Jesus kind of did a play on his profession when he called Peter into the ministry. We'll see it in Matthew 4, uh, 18 through 20. He says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, this is Jesus, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was later called Peter, and we'll get to that, and Andrew, his brother, casting, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. You see what Jesus did there? He probably went to bed that night thinking, that was pretty clever. I got a hand my, I got a hand myself. He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. It reminds me of um, when Steve Jobs was uh, uh, courting Jim Scully, I think, who was the executive of Pepsi, trying to get him to come on to Apple. And he said, Jim, he said, do you just want to sell sugar water your whole life, or do you want to help me change the world? And it's kind of what Jesus is saying, boys, do you just want to fish your whole life, or do you want to help me be fishers of men and change the world? Now, I want you to notice something. Simon's, uh, Peter's birth name was not Peter. His birth name was actually Simon. He received a different name from Jesus himself toward the end of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Getting towards the end of his ministry, he called his disciples to the northern Gentile city of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was, had the, the oldest and the newest form of pagan worship there. We'll have an image there we'll put up. Uh, this was the cave or the grotto of the god Pan. He was half man, half goat, and he played a little pan flute. And he uh, was uh, thought to live in the cave, which they believed at the time had an endless pit uh, and an uh, endless supply of water. The lower uh, images there... You can see the niches where they had various statues and images that was uh, given into worship of Pan. In Caesarea Philippi, there was this huge, shining, white uh, marble temple that was built for the worship of Caesar. Uh, the Canaanite deity, uh, Baal Gad, uh, the god of good fortune, he was worshipped there. And so Jesus gathers his uh, disciples into this backdrop of, you know, a mecca of false religions, of spiritual traps, of false gods. And it is here that he asks his disciples a key question. And he says this, in this backdrop of all these small g-gods, he says, boys, who do you say that I am? And Simon pipes in and he says, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the anointed one. I believe that you are God's son. You're the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus applauds him uh, in, in a sense. And he says this to him. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And he goes on to say, I also say to you that you are Peter. In Greek, the word is Petros. It means rock, strong. He says that you are Petros, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Peter 
was the rock long before Dwayne Johnson was the rock. Okay? And so Jesus says, look, you're not no longer Simon. I'm calling you Petros because you are a rock, a sure, strong foundation. Now, I have to wonder, because this is how my mind works. If the other disciples were like, change my name next, especially Bartholomew, he'd be like, hey, if anyone deserves to get a better name, I'm Bartholomew, right? And so, but nobody else, it was just Simon is changed to Peter. Now, Peter was uh, enthusiastic, he was bold, unafraid to ask the difficult questions, sometimes impulsive, always rough around the edges. Peter's lowest point in ministry and in life came when Jesus was arrested and put on trial. But before we get to that incident, we need to back up just hours before to see what exactly happened. Hours before his arrest, Jesus gathers 12 of the disciples, those closest to him, and they go up into an upper room. John chapter 13 is one of the gospels that talks about this. They go into an upper room for the Last Supper. And Jesus is hours away from his crucifixion, so every word has weight, every action is a teaching moment, and uh, he begins to tell his disciples what's going to happen, and he foretells his death. He says, look, boys, very soon I will, I will die, I will be put to death, which Peter, being the rock that he is, stands up and he says, I will never have it. He says, I will stand with you side by side, you and I, taking on the world. Have you seen 300, Jesus? You can be Leonidas. He says, this is Sparta, ready? He's ready to go to war with Jesus. And Jesus drops a sobering truth on me. He says, Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater. He says, Peter, he says, I know your intentions are good. But the truth is, before this day ends, You will deny me, not once, not twice, but you will deny even knowing me three times. Now imagine what that had to be like. At one moment, you're swearing your allegiance, saying, Jesus, I will swing a sword side by side, you and me, to the death. And the next minute, Jesus says, Peter, not only will you not fight for me, but you will actually deny ever knowing me. So we fast forward to uh, the... Uh, trial. He's arrested. Peter is now sitting outside of the, uh, uh, in a courtyard while the trial, mock trial, is, is going on. And sure enough, Peter is approached by a woman who says, are you not one of the men who are with Jesus, the disciple, uh, Jesus, uh, the, the one who was on trial? And Peter's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. Now, things were getting hostile at this point, right? There's an angry crowd. 300 soldiers already just came to arrest Jesus in, in the garden, and, and people are thirsty for blood. And Peter's like, hey, this is a dangerous situation suddenly. And then another one comes up to him, says uh, that he's warming himself by the fire. And another person comes up and says, I'm almost sure you are with Jesus. And he's like, look, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. And then it says that a household servant came up and said, I know you were the one with Jesus. Your accent gives you away. And this time, the Bible tells us that the crass fisherman comes out and he drops some salty language to distance himself for Jesus. Now, we don't know what that looks like. Expletives, who knows? But somehow he says, I don't blankety blank, whatever, know the man, and I've never known the man. And at that moment, what Jesus prophesied came through. Peter denied Jesus, not once, but And the man who was known as the rock is suddenly self-demoted to a pebble. 
In a cowardly moment, he becomes everything he hated. Peter the rock is now Peter the denier. Now we jump ahead. Jesus is mocked, ridiculed, made to carry his cross uh, to his place of execution. He is crucified. Uh, The body is prepared quickly, placed in a tomb, stone rolled in front of the tomb. Three days later, Mary Magdalene is coming to the tomb, and she comes across an open tomb. The stone has been rolled away. And she's freaking out, right? And so she runs back to uh, Peter and John, and she says, the, 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 the uh, stone has been rolled away and the body is missing. Now, nobody thought this was a resurrection at this point. They just thought, she said, someone took the body and these guys start freaking out. And so uh, Peter and John, they start to run to the tomb to see what's going to happen. Now, here's what I find interesting. I want you to notice how many times John, we're going to read in his gospel, John refers to himself in the third person all the time. I want you to notice how many times he comments who got to the tomb first. John 20. He says, so Peter went out with the other disciple. The other disciple is John. He won't name himself. And they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached to the tomb first. Leave it to a dude to make it a competition of who gets to Jesus's tomb first, right? And so he has to, not that it matters, but I got there first. And said, verse five, and stooping to look in, he saw that linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him. Not that it matters, but he was pretty far behind me. He went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the other linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself, because Jesus likes to keep things tidy. Now, look at verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, not that it mattered, but I just want that to be known, also went in, and he saw and he believed. These guys had some type of competition going on, right? Here's my thinking. I wonder if Peter, John, they set off neck and neck. They're running to the tomb, wondering what is going on. You know, I do remember him saying about three days later, you know, the temple will will rise again, and and, and what's going on, and, and could it be? And then I wonder if Peter started to think about what happened three days earlier. I wonder if Peter starts saying, could he really be, could he really have risen from the dead? And what if he's really risen from the dead? I wonder if, if he began to slow down as, as the weight of his actions settled upon him. And, and he's starting to wonder, why was I so stupid? And what is it going to be like when I face Jesus eye to eye? What's he going to say to me? How do I break in? What do I say to him? What, 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 what is, is Jesus even going to want me on his team? Is he just going to dismiss me? And Peter has his, what does God think when he thinks about me moment? And I wonder if he starts slowing down thinking, I don't even know if Jesus will want to see me. I've denied ever knowing him. Listen, if my wife and I are at a party and she denies knowing me, that's a problem. He's like, you know that guy? She's like, no. And he's kind of a creeper. I don't know why I'm talking like this. He doesn't talk like this. By the way, it's her birthday today. So moving right on. I don't know why you're clapping. You had nothing to do with it. So I wonder if Peter starts to slow down, 
right? Because of the weight and thinking, what have I done and what is it going to be like when I see Jesus for the first time? Head hung in shame, disgusted with himself, dejected, feet dragging. He arrives at the tomb. He needs a word of encouragement. He's like, just coming in like this. And John's like, beat ya, right? I mean, that's all that John could say. And so we jump ahead to Peter's first encounter now with Jesus, right? They find out Jesus is resurrected. He reveals himself to his disciples. And in this particular case, he's actually preparing, he's cooking the disciples' breakfast, which I tell my wife, you are most like Jesus when you're cooking something for me. And so he's cooking for his disciples, and they're coming in off the shore, and this is the recorded first uh, encounter that Jesus has with Peter. Now, if there's an elephant in the room, how many of you are, let's just kind of ignore it and play nice, and just, you know, make it all work together. Let's pretend it's not there. And let's just keep the peace. Who, who is that? Come on, don't be, come on, participate with me. How many are the break out the elephant gun, we're going hunting, I don't care if it ruins Christmas dinner? How many of you guys are that? Yeah. Jesus was break out the elephant gun because we're going to address the elephant in the room. And so he calls uh, Peter off to the side. He says, you got a minute to chat. And suddenly the mundane moment suddenly contains stuff of holiness. We see it in John 21. Notice a few things in the passage. Jesus says, Simon, odd, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus, he said to him, feed my lamb. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, here's what I think was happening. I think that last time when Peter kind of, it just settled upon him, what's happening, I think his answer was, Jesus, you know that I love you, but I don't love you in the way that I thought. And, and you know that I want to love you, and, and, and you know that I want to be the rock, and you know that I want to be strong, but you also know what happened. And, and if you need to know the truth, which you already know, you know that I want to be faithful but you know that I blew it. It seems like a slightly confusing conversation, but let's unpack it. Notice the name that Jesus uses when confronting him. He does not call him Peter the Rock. He calls him by his birth name. He says, Simon, son of John. Almost as if he's, He's reaching in to that part of Peter that he hates about himself. And it's almost a reminder to say, Peter, I, I know you thought that you had it all together. I know you thought your faith was strong. And I know you thought that, that you'd be there to the end. But I'm not even going to address you as Peter. I'm going to address you as Simon. Do you really love me? It's odd. It's as if Jesus is taking Simon back to the moment of his biggest failure and his deepest regret. Simon, do you, you love me more than life, more than your own safety? 
And then I find it odd that three times Peter denied Jesus, and now three times Jesus asks Simon, do you love me? Again, almost as if uh, he's recreating the entire denial scene. Jesus calls him out as, as if he's speaking to the part of Peter that, 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 that really is disgusting Peter at this time. It's, it's his lowest moment and his point of deepest regret. And with each passing question, I think Jesus was reaching a little further into his soul, staring at him straight, straight in the eye, acknowledging his shortcomings. Look, there was an elephant in the room and Jesus was saying, look, let's not pretend this didn't happen. Let's not pretend it wasn't a big deal. Let's get it all out on the table, Simon, because here's why. The only way we move past this and the only way we bury this and the only way that ultimately you will be able to forgive yourself is if you allow me into the murky waters of your life, the moment of your biggest regret that we can stand together and I can speak forgiveness over you. Simon, do you love me? Do you love me more than your safety? Do you love me more than your finances? Do you love me more than your comfort? I know you want to, Simon. I know you have good intentions. I know your soul is crushed. And I know right now you're thinking, what does God think when he thinks about me? I know you're thinking that God's like, be gone. And yet Jesus gives Simon exactly what he does not deserve. And he tells them to go and feed my people. See, this is what I love. Jesus sees something in Simon that he does not see in himself. And he not only forgives him, but he reinstates him into his purpose in life. So let me ask you this. What is your Peter moment? What is your moment of regret? What is it that steals your dignity or wraps you in shame whenever you think about it? Maybe it's not a single moment. Maybe it's small moments along a, a, a lifetime or along the last three years that, 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 that just to even think about it is, is embarrassing. And then who told you that God is angry with you? And who told you that God seeks to punish you? How does God respond to our greatest failures? What does God think about when he thinks about you? For too many followers of Jesus, we don't have very good, we don't have much confidence that God's thoughts to us are good and favorable as a father to his children. Because we've been hooked by a lie that says your past determines your future. And your lowest moment determines how God will respond to you. See, for some of us, there's an elephant in the room that stands between you and God. And and Jesus is saying, hey, let's not pretend this doesn't exist. Let's not pretend it's not a big deal. And what Jesus is asking is to invite me into that place of your deepest regret, that I can sit there with you. See, I think part of the reason that we struggle with forgiveness and part of the reason we struggle with salvation is maybe because we've never invited Jesus into that dark place and just to let him sit there for a moment and allow the reality to sit heavy 
and then to allow Jesus to say, you are forgiven. Not just to hear it, but to experience it and to believe it and to, and to receive that and to let it be something that moves you and pushes you forward. See, I believe Jesus is willing to walk in to our season of greatest regret. Not to condemn us, but to free us. And see, that's Romans 8, 1 that says, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say, hey, there's no condemnation once you've been a Christian long enough, or there's no condemnation uh, once you've read enough of the Bible, or you've prayed enough, or, or you've been to enough Bible studies. Paul said, look, if you are under the banner, if you're part of the family of Jesus, there is no condemnation for you right now. And so who told you what God thinks about when he thinks about you? And who told you that God is angry at you? And that God is punishing you or waiting to punish you? Your Peter moment, my Peter moment, is what I did. It's not who I am. It's what you did. Let's not ignore it. Let's pretend it doesn't exist, but it is not who you are. And just as Jesus would not allow Peter's lowest moment to define the rest of his life, he steps into our existence and says, I will not allow your worst moment, your greatest regret, to be the thing that defines you moving forward. If you'll invite me in, and you will get a new perspective on what I think about when I think about you. Let me have the band come up, please. You know, this encounter with Peter and Jesus came shortly after the resurrection. And I love this encounter because it's, it's in a very real sense, Jesus was telling Peter, hey, the resurrection, it's not just for me. See, the resurrection from death to life, it's not just for me, but that resurrection from your dead self to your new self, that resurrection is for you too. And not only was that resurrection for Peter, that resurrection is for you and it's for me because we all need a resurrection story. We all need Jesus to step in to the dark, ugly side of us and say, my resurrection becomes your resurrection and you can be forgiven if you would only seek mercy and I will give mercy over judgment. And that is the type of God that we serve. You know, Old Testament Psalm says that he's inscribed your name on his hand. It's almost like you, he's tatted up and he's like, yeah, Marty, put it right there. And whatever your name is. And, and, and it, the imagery is that you never leave his mind. The imagery when, when he talks about in, in Psalm 139 where the question is asked, how precious, how great are God's thoughts to you? And the author answers this question and says, his thoughts about you outnumber the grains of sand in the sea. Imagine having a God in spite of all that we've done wrong. And yet he still thinks about me and says, God, I love that. What if he's thinking that about you and us right now? Because mercy triumphs over judgment. Who told you God is angry with you? Who told you he is a punishing God? Peter thought his life was over. He certainly thought his ministry was over. 
And yet, through an encounter with Jesus, he realized that his life was not over, but it is just now beginning. And I speak that upon you. Life is not over. It is just now beginning. Let's bring the lights down. We're going to close with a song of worship. And would you just allow this to speak over you? I just want you to allow the words to rest. Hey, and if there's an elephant in the room, now's the time to address it. Maybe you need to come to the altar. Maybe you just stay in your chair. Maybe it's a time of raw openness before God. But would you invite Jesus into that moment that ultimately he can speak forgiveness over you? I'm going to ask you to just be seated for the first part of the song. And then midway through, Morgan will ask us to stand. And we'll sing this together. Lord, we all have a story where we thought it was the end. And you would have been justified in removing us. And yet it was just the beginning. Because your mercy runs deep. I speak over you, church, the truth of what God thinks about you. 
speak over you, that he thinks about thoughts of blessing. Thoughts of goodness to you. The apple of his eye. A son of God, a daughter of God. He has inscribed your name on the palm of his hand. So today we embrace truth. And we walk away from the lie that says you can't handle our past or that you are eternally upset with us or that you seek to punish. And we embrace the truth that you are forgiveness and that you will not allow our lowest point in life to define our future. We invite you for your forgiveness to wash through us. Renew our minds, renew our spirits with truth. What do you think about when you think about what God thinks about when he thinks about you? You are eternally loved. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you're a guest, I'd love to meet you. If you'd like anything, if we can pray for you, come on up here. Let someone pray for you. Uh, Again, we'll continue the Hook series, great series to invite someone to. God bless you guys. Look forward to seeing you next week. See you soon.